Hello and welcome to Creative Callings. We are Collage, a team of creatives in London, and here you're listening to our refreshing conversations and tips to inspire your creative practice. In this episode, we host a talk on digital marketing at Blighty in Tottenham. Our guest today is Conference Director and Marketing Strategist Gianfranco Chico. My name is Gianfranco or Gian. Actually, I have a very long name, Gianfranco Ernesto Maria Chico, but nobody calls me that. So Gian works. Gian is a former European Marketing Director of the Webby Awards. So we ask him to help us navigate the latest trends in digital marketing, from social media to podcasts and newsletters. How can we get our products into people's hands? And could our business survive or even thrive without social media? Jan's ideas and provocations are not to be missed. But first, let us give you a spoiler. To be successful in the digital world, you have to become relevant, useful and entertaining. And this is how. Until a year ago, I was working at the Webby Awards. Now, the Webbies are kind of the Oscars of the internet. We honor excellence online, so we were in the middle of all the great stuff happening in digital. Big, small, you know, some of the big corporates you are very used to, and some of the up-and-comings. And this was great because on one side, we, uh, we saw all the, the great work they were doing, and we could distill some interesting trends and, and see what's working, where, and what markets. And that's usually something I use to inform my talks. Um, when I give talks, I have very different audiences in front of me. Sometimes it's a team of creatives at a big agency. Other times it's the, the team of, of the mayor of a city that they want to understand how to interact better with uh, you know, the citizens using digital. So for today, of course, this is not going to be a master's in digital marketing. But I wanted to bring a few ideas, provocations, concepts, and, and examples. Now, why are we talking about digital marketing and social media? When you were mentioning earlier that you have you know, a shoe-making shop and stuff, and now you have to deal with tech and stuff. That's kind of the world we live in. You know, um, I have some friends that say, oh, no, I'm, we're, we're not into marketing, actually. I'm an engineer by training. I never studied marketing in a way, or at least not officially. Well, but you're going to deal with this. You know, you've probably seen this earlier this week. The new chancellor, he uh, posted a photo. Oh, we're making, you know, a cup of Yorkshire tea for the team. And, and probably he was trying to become closer to the population. You know, and yes, we're team players here and stuff. But this didn't have the results he expected, or at least, you know, had some unexpected results for these guys here. Because people that, you know, some people that don't like the government, this is not a political thing, it's not about if I'm in favor or against, but some people that actually don't really like the government, starting attacking Yorkshire tea, and starting to plan a complot, and they went onto their media properties and insult them, and you know, it's, we shouldn't drink this tea anymore, done with the corporations, done with tea, we should be drinking coffee, crazy stuff. This exploded, and of course, Yorkshire Tea came out saying, oh, we were not part of this, this was not a stunt, we didn't pay for this, we're not asked, you know, if it wanted to be featured on an official account. But now they had to deal with this thing, you know, and, and somehow try to cope. And they got hundreds of thousands of interactions uh, on social media mostly, to the point that after two days of replying and trying to kind of, you know, uh, mend the, the crisis that exploded out of nowhere, one of the directors uh, of the account said, hey guys, we get it. You know, we make tea for the guys on one side, on the other side. This is not what we planned. 
And please remember that behind all these companies that you are shouting against, there's actually real humans. So let's try to keep it at least decent. You know, and, and all of these things were having thousands and thousands and thousands of interactions. This was actually a very, very long thread. So want it or not, if you're in the market, you're somehow into marketing and social media, even if you don't have an official presence there. And just, I'm not going to be showing too many numbers because they're boring, but I want to show this thing. Uh, there's 45 active social media users in the UK. That's about 66% of the population. And it's going up. And we're spending more and more time. Now, on average, it's an hour and 42 minutes per day. But they found that younger demographics, teenagers, during the weekends, they're spending up to eight hours a day on social media. Now, I personally don't think that's a good thing, but this is a fact. We're spending a lot of time. And especially the penetration of smartphones in the UK is almost 100%. In some cases, people have more than one phone. And a lot of the social media stuff and messaging, we're doing it on our phones. So even the kind of interactions you're getting there are quite specific. And you have to keep those things in mind when you think how you want to interact with other people. It could be your customers, your suppliers, or other brands and celebrities online. Now, and when you look at the apps that are most downloaded, now this is global, it's not just for the UK, but it looks very similar. You have mostly social media and messaging apps, which in a way, they kind of overlap. So you have things like TikTok, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Twitter didn't make it to this list because they have kind of a small audience, but the top apps are either games or social media apps. So this is a very, very present thing in the world around us. Now, before I got into the kind of the, the trends side of things, I wanted to touch on something that has become our reality. And this is a, a personal story because I started working on the internet in 1999. And this is a very young me. This was back in Argentina where I'm originally from. And we were launching a website. Uh, it was a, a portal. We called them portals back then for uh, executive education content. But in order to launch a website, we had to build everything ourselves. We spent about a million dollars in buying computers that were servers. You couldn't buy a domain online and just host your website. We actually had to build the technology to have a website that, you know, WordPress or, or Shopify, those things didn't exist. So we had a, a huge team of engineers and there were 40 journalists that were writing online and stuff. And it was really expensive. Nobody knew how to do things. We had to kind of invent them ourselves. But now you look around and you have things like WordPress, Shopify and stuff. You can, you know, run your business from your phone. And, you know, some of these products and services are free. Others are quite accessible or you pay, you know, as you require more from them. And a few years ago, when I was at my ex-company, we were running a big party uh, as part of the Webby Awards in San Diego. So the idea was, you know, invite all the creatives in the area to kind of a networking event, have a drink and a chat. And we needed to buy some booze. So we searched, you know, where can we buy booze in San Diego? And we found the quality liquor store. So we're trying to figure out, okay, do these guys, you know, sell the, the stuff we want? And, you know, it was about tequila and, and shots or whatever. It was, it was sunny. They had a blog and they were talking about the latest trends. You know, we could chat with them online. This looked very professional, but there was an issue uh, with the delivery. They couldn't deliver to where we were, so we had to, you know, rent a car and go there to pick up the booze for, for the party. So, you know, we said, okay, you know, let's, we'll, we'll be there in a couple of hours. And when we got there, this is what we found. <laughs> this is the quality liquor store. Actually, we had to double check on Google Maps that we were at the right place because, you know, we saw this great international, super professional, super clean, very digitally savvy business. The reality is that, you know, this was the, the actual shop. And, you know, back in the 90s, there used to be a meme online that said, um, on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog. Then, of course, 
privacy stopped being a thing, and now we're all on Facebook with our names and stuff, and they're tracking us. But it's kind of coming back. You know, today you can be the smallest of companies and have a world-class digital presence, sell you know, from your hometown stuff online everywhere and get a delivery at the same level as a company like Amazon. Because all these products, you know, are available on the shelf. You just have to understand what you need. And sometimes that's the biggest challenge. What, what is it that you need? Plug it all together and then it sort of works. So it has changed a lot. And, you know, when I talk with the big guys, they're afraid of this. You know, because anyone can compete with them. But actually, when I look at small and medium businesses, this is amazing. Because now, you know, you don't need a huge capital to do a lot of these things. In fact, now they're kind of famous, but this is a company that was born in New Zealand. It's called Allbirds. They started doing this shoes first with merino wool and then eucalyptus leaf or something like that. And they started four or five years ago in a world dominated by Adidas and Nike. I said, oh, guys, you have no chance. You know, there's, there's enough brands out there. You don't have the capital. You cannot compete and stuff. You know what? They started a DTC, so direct-to-consumer, no shops. Now they do have a couple of shops. They opened one in London a year or two ago in, in Covent Garden. But they just did you know, everything online with a warehouse, and they became a world-class player that now competes with Adidas. And what gave them this advantage was you know, digital stuff and digital marketing, not physical shops. So today, to create truly unique experiences is the only way to break through, because otherwise, you have the risk of being overlooked. Everybody else, you know, any dog online can, can sell stuff and pretend to be uh, huge and massive and stuff. So how do you get, you know, your product into people's hands or your service? And often you hear, oh, well, but we make quality products. The consumer will know. Well, usually the consumer first meets you online. And if you have a, a shoddy quality there, they'll never get to the actual thing you're doing, even if it's amazing. Because even if you're not good at, for example, embracing word of mouth online, you know, you won't break through. So the three things I'm going to be touching uh, later on, I actually want to discuss with you of how do you become relevant in this world where everyone can compete at almost the same level. And it comes down to, you know, when you're thinking of digital marketing or social media, how can you be either useful or relevant or entertaining? Sometimes the three things happen at the same time. Sometimes if you cannot satisfy none of them, it's better not to do anything. But the question I get very, very often is, where should we start? Because there's so many things you have to be good at and you should, could be doing you know, to have better marketing online and have a better presence on social media. But usually when, when I start to look at you know, the, either if it's a freelance asking me for advice or a company is, let's see what you're doing right now. And often they're not doing the basics, the low-hanging fruit. Now, first of all, I could talk about social media in general, but it has changed a lot over the last, even the last five years. The first thing is, Social media, at least on all the you know, major platforms, has become pay-to-play. Organic is dead. Forget it, uh, oh, I'm going to start my Instagram account and stuff, and then thousands of people are going to find me. If you don't pay Instagram for promoting your posts, nobody's going to see you. you know? and, and it's no longer that whatever you publish, if someone is following you, they're going to see. The algorithm just shows a few things, and it's going to constantly remind you, oh, you want to you know, boost it to some more people? Okay, give us five pounds, 10 pounds, and stuff. So organic, except with the very new platforms where there's always opportunity while they're fresh, is dead. It's mostly a pay-to-play world. And the second thing is you own nothing. I remember I was once talking with a very big brand in Milan and said, oh yeah, we have a million people that have liked our page and stuff. No, 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 wait. Facebook has a million people that have liked your page on their platform. You have nothing. If Facebook unplugs you, you know, they block you or whatever, you have nothing. You don't know who these million people are. 
So you're sort of paying for having permission on Facebook to interact with those people, but they're not yours. You don't know them. In fact, Lush, anyone familiar with Lush, the cosmetics uh, British brand? A year, a year, when is this from? April of last year? They pulled the plug on social media as something they did full time. Now, they had hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. You know, the stuff most brands dream of. If you look, the average company has online 300, 500 followers, not more than that. They had already hundreds of thousands of them. You know, on this post, they got almost 90,000 views. But they said, look, the thing is, this is the game that if we want to have presence, we have to pump in a lot of money, hire more and more and more people to do this. So we are taking, because in the end they're not really a big company, we are taking these resources out of doing what we're good at, which is making great products, sustainable, not tested of animals, and really being very good at bringing customers to our shop and having a chat with them. So they said, look, you know, we're going to still do our newsletter and our website. We're not going to be throwing all this money away onto other people's platforms. We want to meet and know our customers and not have someone in the middle that's filtering them. So the best way to start is always to address the low-hanging fruit. For example, if you're a business and have you know, a physical space, have you claimed your business on Google Maps or Apple Maps? Um, are you following the reviews happening there? And do you know you can interact actually with someone who's having a, a terrible experience at your cafe? You, know, you can go and interact with them and have a chat and maybe solve that. You know, this is readily available. You can Google how to claim your business and they'll give you a call or you have to prove that you have an, an email that's connected to the domain of that place. It's, it's quite easy. But this is something, this is social media. You can chat with customers, you know, actual customers on the maps, or you can make sure that they find the right place, or even that the opening hours are right. Because if you know, if you go to a theater and stuff, or a cafe or a restaurant, and the hours were wrong, you know, that's a terrible experience for your customer. Probably they're not going to come back. So always start with the lowest hanging fruit. There's probably a lot of the basics that you're not doing because maybe you didn't think about them, maybe it was not your job, or maybe you know, oh, you didn't know you could even claim your location on Google Maps. The second thing, you know, when you want to be proactive and go towards your customers, the most important thing is to understand where do they actually hang out? Where are they already? You know, it's, oh yeah, we're going to open our Instagram thing, or who are you serving? You know, you're serving people that are, I don't know, uh, above 65 or 70 years old. Probably they're not very active on Instagram or on Snapchat. You know, maybe you, you might want to go to email because they feel more comfortable using that. Or if you're addressing uh, teenagers, TikTok is the hot thing these days, you know? Whenever I ask kind of a test, you know, someone that's under 18, if they have a Facebook, they say, oh no, my parents are on Facebook, my grandparents are on Facebook. I'm never gonna use Facebook, you know? It's actually the kids, and they're abandoning it now because Instagram is not cool anymore. They used to have the Insta and the Finsta. One is the public Instagram, oh yes, mom, this is, you know, who I am, and I'm being the, the, a good person. And then they have their Finstagram, which is the one that's private. They only share with your friends, and that's the real deal. Right, so where are your people hanging out? And you know, the best way is to ask them or observe. It's if you're running a physical space, ask them. You know, maybe you have a, a small piece of paper and, and they can you know, just make a cross when, when they're paying. Oh yes, I'm, I'm on Facebook or on Snapchat and stuff. Or if you're transacting with them digitally, ask them you know, with a small survey. Not because you want to be creepy, but because you want to understand, first of all, where do they hang out? And then think if there's an opportunity for you to be there. Now, the fact that people are somewhere doesn't mean that you need to be there. You know, we've all had that awkward relative uh, that usually starts dancing in the middle of the wedding and everyone, oh no, you know, grandpa is doing it again and stuff. So, of course, you don't want to be that as a brand, right? You want to be appropriate to who you are. But understanding where people are hanging out is very important because it's your people. And go and meet them there if that's the case.
The other thing is, very often I see digital campaigns that try to force people to do something. And it's like, you know, the, the old school cartoons where you're trying to push a cat through the door and the, car, the cat just opens, you know, its limbs and stuff and you, you cannot force it in. So help your people. And this could be customers, users, pick, you know, depending what your business is, or even if it's potential clients, help them do what they already want to do. That's going to make it easier. It's going to give you a buy-in. And then on top of that, once you have trust in a relationship, you can suggest other things. But very often I say, oh, now go to our website and do these things instead of us. No, I was interacting with you on social media. I don't want to go to your website. Why are you forcing me to go there? Solve my problem here where I am right now. And then this is the other one. You know, not only pick the most appropriate platform to, to interact with these people. Um, it's these days, for example, when, when you talk with recruiters, a lot of people don't look for a job on LinkedIn. They're using other platforms. But I don't want a recruiter to reach out to me on my personal WhatsApp, for example, if I didn't give them my phone and stuff. So there's a bit of, you know, you have to be aware of if you're being creepy or not. But then pick just one. Because the other thing is, you know, Maybe you have a small team, maybe it's just two people, three people, or one, one person, and you're trying to be everywhere at the same time, which means you're going to be nowhere because it's a hard job to be present. You need to commit. Actually, it takes a lot of time. You know, the whole viral thing, I remember, and I realized this is not politically correct in these days of coronavirus, but I remember once I had a big client say, oh, yeah, we want to do something viral and stuff. And I, I proposed that they got into Ebola back then because that's the only viral thing you can guarantee. Viral content. I mean, of course, Coca-Cola, they throw millions and millions into an ad and then to promote it and stuff. So of course, they're gonna get millions of views on their YouTube video, but that's not how this thing works. You cannot create something viral. If you're lucky and it's good enough and you care enough about the people you're serving, they'll spread it among themselves and it you know, might grow a bit. But it takes time and a lot of work. Florian Gatsby, he's a, a potter uh, based in, uh, now he's in North London. I interviewed him for, for a side project I have uh, at the end of last year. And he has 267,000 followers on Instagram. Every time he finishes a batch of pots, he puts it online and in less than 30 seconds, he sells, it goes sold out. He's a one-month person, now he's, he's running his own studio. He just bought a couple of new kilns. And, you know, I have a side project that has to do with craftsmanship, so I talk with a lot of potters and other makers. Oh, yeah, but, you know, Florian has it easy. He has 200,000 people online, so every time he, he puts out 10 cups, they're sold out. Well, it's not that Florian got this for free. Talking with him, every time he posts a photo, he spends hours trying to find uh, the best photo possible. He does a lot of tests. He learned how to edit the photos properly so he doesn't need to pay a third person because in the end he's a maker, you know, he doesn't have all this extra money. But then he spends hours and hours working on the copy. And actually, if you then visit his account, you'll find that he explains his whole process. All his secrets, his trade secrets are out there. So actually, for every photo, and he has uh, 1,700 online, he spends between five and 10 hours crafting it and stuff. And it took years. He started very early on on Instagram. So if you start today, even if you put the hours and don't pay, you won't get that following. So he was lucky, yes. It just so happens that um, my dad's a potter and I'm taking care of his Instagram. I started two months ago and the reason is uh, I built an online course in glazing for him. And so every day I post a picture of his, uh, uh, one of his pottery, and I get about one or two followers per day, and now I'm at 80 followers. So I imagine that it goes like exponentially. Um, sometimes. So he started very early when Instagram was very new, and there were not many potters, but search for pottery online. Oh, no, no, no. 
and right, so so uh, it used to be exponentially, it used to be easier, but now the quality of the photos is so high that even allow me to use the word mediocre potters or even fake. So there's a lot of very popular Instagram accounts where they just get photos from everybody, they put them there, and it looks amazing. So it's becoming tougher. And then the thing is, imagine your dad gets, I don't know, ten thousand followers, but nobody buys a thing. What are they worth, right? So there's a famous technologist who was one of the founders of Wired magazine back in the mid-90s called Kevin Kelly. He has this thesis, which is quite interesting. He says, you just need, if you're an independent creator, you just need a thousand loyal fans to have a good life. And this means a thousand people that care about everything you put out there, that they'll buy everything and stuff. You could have a million that maybe visit you, you know, once every, once a year, and they don't pay for something that you're doing. That's not a good thing. If you have a thousand that care about everything, every time you put a new video about glazing and stuff, they're going to be there commenting and stuff and learning. And I'd rather have 80 very engaged followers than 10,000 that do nothing. But the interesting thing is, again, I think he's quite, I mean, I actually bought one of his pots before, before I met him. And it was one of those refreshing constantly to see if I could get it. It was very last minute. And he interacts with regular people like me, with other potters. He's quite open. And I'm about to publish an interview with him in, in my newsletter. But he says, look, my secret is, is dedicating to my craft and be, being very good and practicing and stuff. It's not how much clay I use or the temperature or, or the glazing. It's actually the hard work I'm putting into it that makes me different from others. But the thing is this, you know, when people think, oh, social media, I'm going to put it out there and it's going to work, most likely it won't. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, and sometimes you have to be constant. Maybe what's going to happen is that you reach a tipping point of maybe a thousand people that care a lot about them, and then you start to see the network effect because, you say, oh, you want to learn this kind of technique? Go and check this out, and then there's a YouTube. Now, the interesting thing is that he doesn't sell anything on Instagram. He's selling a, a platform, it's his email. So you'll get an email and it says, look, I'm going online today at 9 p.m., be at my website at this time, and then it sells out in 30 seconds. So this is, yes, in a way, if you want promotion, if you want, but, but he gives a lot. It's not just, I'm going to put a nice photo and this is a cup. There's a lot of energy that goes into this. So I've heard about, you know, from some of you what you do, but, but I don't know what everybody does in this room. And I'm curious to understand what you do and how you could become either useful or relevant or entertaining for someone that you want to track. Because in the end, this is key. And you know, some of the big companies, it's, it's easier what they're doing because they have whole teams of people trying to figure these things out. But for digital marketing and social media, this is the main point. You have to try to nail one of these three things. Otherwise, why would someone care? Especially when there's so much stuff online. You know, when there were a hundred websites online, and I remember those days, you could search, you know, actually, Yahoo was curated by hand. Someone made those directories by hand because there were so few websites. Today, how is someone going to find you, you know, if, if you're not on Google Maps and you're not either being useful, relevant, or entertaining? So anyone wants to have a, a take at this and, and what you do and what you could do in any of these three categories? Hi, my name is Erica. I work in science and medical publishing. My target audience is um, publishers and scientific organizations heritage like museums. So a couple of questions there. One is about pay to play. Is it better to do direct correspondence and networking rather than doing social media? So first of all, figure out where is your potential audience. If all these researchers and stuff that then want to have those videos produced are on LinkedIn, go there. Or maybe it's the chamber of academics of, I don't know, whatever discipline. And maybe they have a website or a Facebook group. Go and spend time there. Um, uh, one thing I'm trying not to do today is offer you a formula because there's no formula. 
So figure out where they're hanging out and then make sure you're there. For example, there's a, a website called Quora for questions. People say, oh, why is China so big? Or uh, how many minutes should you brew Yorkshire tea? And other people answer questions. It's great for positioning yourself as an expert in a certain domain. Go and look for all the questions in that domain and answer to them there. Right? So there's all these possibilities. But the most important thing is to break kind of the chains of the big numbers. Maybe if, search for some of your past clients or past relation, relations in that industry. Look for them on LinkedIn. If they're there, join. And, and add your profile and what you've done, you know, and a, a nice profile photo and, 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 and stuff. Otherwise, don't waste your time if, if, if they're not there. Um, there's one weird thing happening. In particular, LinkedIn announced today or yesterday that now they're going to have stories like Instagram and Facebook. Everyone's trying to become Facebook, which I find it quite sad because they're losing their core. So in the end, you know, you're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And in the end, the, the people you end up doing business with is those that you met at the pub, you know, on a Friday evening or, or an event here and stuff. And you found you had something in common. And there was a second question, though. Because it's such a specific audience, would it be better to... Do I actually need to... I, I do need a LinkedIn presence, but in terms of other social media, I tend to think that I could probably avoid it because, because it, it's that sense of developing um, a network with the publishers and with the scientific organisations. I think it's more of a question, first of all, let's say you had a second presence online on, on, on some social media platform. Would you have the energy and the time to manage it properly? Because that's usually what, what breaks a lot of these things. Yes, I remember when I, was, uh, I worked for the mayor of the city of Milan for a six-month project to put the city on digital and social in particular to interact with the citizens. And they wanted to be everywhere. But then I looked at the resources they had, not only the people, but also the equipment, and said, you cannot be everywhere. You don't, it makes sense to be everywhere, but you don't have the resources. So what's the point of being everywhere if you cannot manage it? So one of the reasons I left the Webby's uh, almost a year ago is because I'm working on a book. And I've never written a book before, so I had to figure out, okay, now I'm, you know, I'm talking to agents and publishers, people that were not kind of my tribe. And I found out that they spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm writing nonfiction, not scientific, but still. So maybe, you know, if, if you start searching the potential, if the academics are spending time on Twitter, uh, there's a lot of actually, um, I have a few friends who are scientists and they share a lot of geeky stuff on Twitter, you know, the, the, the outer space Twitter and stuff. So maybe that could be a good platform. But the rule or the, or the, or the approach I would, I would suggest is pick five people that either you work with or you would like to work with and figure out where they're spending time and then be there. Be there with real presence, you know, and, and offering value and, 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 you know, and announcing what you're doing and stuff. Because there's a lot of uh, organizations and individuals that are out there lurking, kind of trying to get information and stuff. But usually you, start, you need to give a lot for someone then to care about you or trust you. Pick an audience because it'll give you at least focus. Uh, and you could follow up with them. And maybe you had to do a first project either for free or for very little money to put it out there. Uh, but then you can pitch it to other people that could have the same problem and need something similar. And it's easier to say, hey, you're also in the publishing business and I made a video for another publisher. Check it out. And then going to someone that's, I don't know, a restaurant and said, hey, I made a video for a publishing. I don't care about it. Or somewhere you, you know someone. You know, it's, it's when, when I was freelancing uh, many moons ago, uh, I still freelance, but, but when I was starting out, I didn't know what to do. You know, it's... Uh, it was, okay, whomever gave me a job first, uh, I'm going to do that. And actually, I mentioned I'm an engineer by training, uh, an industrial engineer. But I ended up working in events, producing big events. The first time they reached out to me, they wanted to solve an issue. And for me, it was an engineering issue. Then I, I understood I was in events, and then I built skills within the event industry. And then I, I started to pitch myself to other people that had events. So start somewhere. Then if you don't like it, and you hate that domain, you know, move somewhere else.
This event is organized by N17 Creative Callings, a project sponsored by the Mayor of London to support creative businesses and freelancers based in Tottenham. To find out more, visit collageworks.org. Of course, there's always trends. The same way that, you know, if you're interacting with, for example, with the teenagers, or if you're a teenager yourself, you know, TikTok is gaining a lot of traction. So it, it's kind of useful to understand what is working and for whom. Because sometimes, you know, being early pays. But it's important not to be obsessed by every trend. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, oh, we should be on Snapchat. And I remember I told, I told the CEO of a company, uh, the, the PR director uh, that was reporting to the CEO, very traditional company, seven levels of approval for everything. And they wanted to be on Snapchat. And I said, would your CEO pull down his pants on Snapchat and do those kind of risky videos and stuff? And no, never. And then we, so don't be on Snapchat. You know, all the, actually, Snapchat had a, a whole section for very curated videos. Nobody watched them. Because people went there for the kind of uh, instantaneous stuff that disappears after 24 hours, the kind of stuff that was not on YouTube. So pay attention to the trends, just don't jump on all of them just because. One we see that's rising, one I care a lot about, is the calm internet. Because on, you know, not only stuff is, is, is moving too fast, but we're at a point where, you know, we're starting to sacrifice the things that make us, like sleep, for all this digital stuff. You know, on an average day, this used to be kind of the, the, the bottom part of my, of my phone, right? And what is your job? Oh, I'm the chief email officer because I'm doing emails, you know, 90% of the day and then the other 10% my actual job. So it's, it's, you know, more and more people are feeling this. It's not just professionals, it's individuals. It's, you know, the teenager, teenagers is quite tough because sometimes they don't have another point of reference and they're spending, as I mentioned before, eight hours every day of the weekend online, you know, and of course that takes its toll on, on some of the domains. So, you know, there's all this content, you, you know, there's the, the, the FOMO, right, fear of missing out. So we constantly feel that we don't have enough and we have to jump to the next thing and the next thing, which means we don't even enjoy what we have or what we're good at. So going back to your point, you know, start somewhere and maybe, you know, that'll be enough or then maybe you'll need some of the stuff or you get a client from another domain and then build it up from there. But the slow internet or the calm internet has a few uh, characteristics. First, it generates more calm than anxiety. There's another acronym, which is JOMO, the joy of missing out. You know, you can go out on a hike and you don't feel you need to be Instagramming every single thing because, you know, you don't need to prove it to anyone that you went on a beautiful hike. Uh, it's also finite. I was talking a few months ago with the guy, uh, Aza Raskin. He created the Infinity Scroll. You know, that when you go like this and you get to the end of, the, of, of something, of, of your newsfeed, there's always more stuff, so you never finish. Once upon a time, websites were limited. And at the end of a page, you had to decide if you would click next page or not. But there was a cue that said, oh, do I really want to spend another hour, you know, watching photos online or something? Well, now you can just go like this forever. It's often asynchronous. You know, the whole thing of being online was very exciting at first because you could chat in real time with people all over the world. But now we're realizing that, you know, you go to bed and your phone is next to you, you wake up and, and you know, you spend the first two hours of your day browsing something, half asleep. And often it's also away from screens. We're seeing, you know, the rise of, for example, podcasts or voice tech. And I'm not going to talk much about voice tech today, but it's something which is quite interesting. But then this is a thing I care a lot about. We are seeing a return of newsletters. Now, except for a very, very, very young demographic that some of them never had an email in their life, most people that do something online do have an email. And the good thing of newsletters is that you check them at your own pace. They're finite, so you get to the end of the email and you can delete it or archive it, but, but that's it. It's very intimate, it gets into your inbox, and there's a lot of other stuff and notifications that get lost somewhere else. 
But it's important to know that a newsletter is not the same as email marketing. And by email marketing, what I mean is people spamming you, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. That's what goes into the spam folder. Now, what is interesting of newsletters is, first of all, they're platform independent. If someone has an email, it doesn't matter what email it is. While most of the other social media platforms are building walled gardens. Facebook doesn't play nicely with Twitter anymore. Twitter doesn't play nicely with Snapchat. Snapchat doesn't play nicely with TikTok. Emails are emails. You own the database. If someone subscribes to your newsletter, they're giving you, you know, their name or their email. And that's, these days, it's not only a big responsibility, but it's something you have. And you can change email provider. You can move to, you know, you close one company, you open another one, and that database is something you can carry with you. It's low and cheap technology. You know, you don't need to pay for anything expensive to run emails. It can be intimate in a way because it feels like um, I'm a bit old school in that I, I love sending postcards and, and handwritten letters. But, you know, emails, because they were not cool for quite a long time, now they're cool again. You know, oh, yeah, you're on social media. No, I send a private email every Sunday to my friends, to my people and stuff. So it's, it's having kind of a, a very big comeback. And it's also very easy to measure conversions. Again, you have one million Instagram followers and stuff. How can you know if you're really, you know, helping your business with that? Well, with the email, you have a tracking, a tracking link. You say, buy here, you know, Florian, he sends an email, and 60 seconds later, he sells out. So it's actually the email. He can track who's clicking the email and who's buying his stuff. Now, the important thing with email is it's not a tactic, right? The whole thing is, oh, now we should have a newsletter and stuff. First of all, it's about the long-term relationships. Because it's also very easy to click spam, and you send someone to the spam because they've been abusing your trust on, on your inbox. And the other thing with emails is that, for example, you could become a curator. You know, in these days of FOMO, fear of missing out, we're constantly affected. Oh, there's so much stuff I could learn, but maybe you're an expert in shoes. So maybe you can start talking about what are the best shoe products or what is the best style for, you know, what kind of shoe you could wear in, in a certain situation and stuff. So you could become a curator and sharing the best of the articles that are out there or the best photos or things which are part of your domain, but you're not trying to sell something. You're more kind of building a knowledge relationship. You could inform people, you know. I used to run a website uh, about conferences for, for quite a while. The most important pages I had is I was recommending conferences all over the world. Because I attended, I don't know, 60 or 70 conferences per year, I could then write an article saying, the 10 conferences you should care about if you are in this or that domain. And people actually loved that because I was saving them a lot of time. You could build community, you could listen uh, with my own newsletter about craftsmanship. I invite people to reply directly to my inbox saying, what do they think about this? This is one of the reasons why I want to keep it relatively small, because of course, if I received 10,000 emails per day, I wouldn't be able to manage that. But I also care a lot about what they're telling me because I'm not trying to sell them anything with this email. You could feature other people and make them the heroes. One of the biggest mistakes that a lot of brands make is that they make it all about themselves. And the truth is, with probably one or two exceptions, people don't care about brands. You know, you could replace most of the products. And some people say, oh yes, Coke or Pepsi, so don't change that product for them. But the jeans they wear, you know, where they do their shopping, supermarket, you know, of course the brand says, oh, people love Tesco or, you know, pick your favorites. Most people don't care about them. They'll go to whatever is more convenient or cheaper. But there's one thing. If someone gives you enough trust to provide their email, you cannot be uninteresting, you cannot be banal. Because, you know, you're wasting their time, which is a lot of the stuff that's happening on social media. And that's why, you know, uh, you can have thousands of followers and nothing is coming out from that because they don't care. There's this influencer, which is a word which is, uh, I'm not a big fan of. She has, it's in, in the order of hundreds of thousands of followers uh, on Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. And she usually pitches herself to brands. But last year, she decided to sell her own t-shirts. She says, I'm going to, you know, pay for cheap t-shirts and put some nice moda there. I'm going to sell them because I have this platform. 
She didn't even sell 30 t-shirts and she had all these hundreds of thousands of followers. She was telling companies, I'm a big influencer. I can send people to your shops and stuff. And then she produced t-shirts. She couldn't even sell 30. So, you know, you cannot be banal. You cannot be uninteresting. And the thing is, you have to earn their trust for something else to happen. This is a book I really recommend. And at the end of the presentation, I have three or four more other books. David Hyatt, uh, he runs a jeans company. Actually, this is not on purpose, but this is one of his jeans, which I paid for. In uh, Wales, you know, Wales was very famous for producing denim, and then everything went to Turkey and to China. So, you know, they fired everybody in the town. It's a town of 4,000 people, 400 were jean makers. And he opened his jeans company there. His main sales channel is a newsletter. He's been building it for the last, uh, I think it's 10 years. It's very slow, it's mostly about information. You know, they work with small batches. But uh, he wrote this very nice little book on, on you know, newsletters and how to create those relationships. Initially, they had a goal of producing a maximum 4,000 pairs of jeans per year because that was the maximum capacity they could handle. And they said, look, if we build a bigger factory and stuff, then we'll have to pay bigger rent and more people and stuff. So most likely we'll go under when something goes wrong. So he was taking all this masters out of retirement to make jeans again. And then something happened a couple of years ago. Megan wore their jeans. And the media picked up on this, and their website exploded. Everyone, you know, and, and all over the world wanted to buy the, the high denim jeans. So they actually ended up moving to a slightly bigger factory and training new people because also some of the people were retiring. But they said, look, if we produce 4,000 jeans, we can have a good life. And I could provide a job to at least 10% of those that are out of a job these days, you know, 40, about 40 people. So they managed their whole production and their whole social media and their whole marketing based on their maximum capacity. It was not like, let's try to sell as much as possible. Because, you know, life is not digital. It's not like, okay, I'll press a button and now we have more capacity. Hiring a person costs, having more space costs, and you have to pay for that. But what is interesting is they built a very transparent, very direct relationship. You can go and knock on their door if you want. You know, it's a, you can interact with them on social media and they'll, eventually they'll reply. But they were very honest about what they're doing. They'll tell you, look, we went to Japan, Turkey, Italy. We find this mill. We find this roll of denim. There's only enough for 100 pairs of jeans. This is the quality. It's going to be 150 quid, so it's not cheap. So it's not a 15 quid pair of jeans, but we'll repair it for life. You can save for this. It'll last very long. In fact, they send you a small manual that says don't wash them for six months. It's this kind of a, I don't want to call it a cult around it, but you know, it's, it's, it's called, uh, you pronounce it in different ways. It's Hute Denim, H-I-U-T, which was Hyatt Utilities originally. And they're based in Wales and they're running a very, very good business uh, with a newsletter mostly. The point is, you know, why is someone going to open your email? Because what is true is that it's not that we're getting no email, right? There's plenty of email and, you know, sometimes the tech gets in the middle. For example, um, I, I use MailChimp too and I was discussing with, with a, a friend that it seems that recently some more emails have been falling into spam and that's maybe temporary or maybe the companies don't like each other and Google is, you know, who knows? But we cannot really have an active part there. You have to hope for the best intentions. The question is, there's a couple of emails that, uh, for example, Courier Magazine is a, is a magazine about kind of modern businesses done here in London in Hambury Street. Every Friday morning, they launch, they send a newsletter with five stories, five interesting stories um, that usually don't come in the magazine, so they're not trying to sell you anything. If I don't get it on a Friday morning, I feel something is wrong. Right now, it's one of the, you know, I don't buy the paper anymore, but there's the Monocle one that I receive at 7 a.m. and the Courier one on Fridays. And for me, that has become almost a fixed appointment. And, you know, this morning I did read it, but if I'm traveling, maybe I will skip it from time to time. 
But for me, it has been, become a point of reference in my day. Friday mornings start with, you know, the email from Courier. And it's mostly about stories and stuff, you know, that I find interesting. So there's a lot of effort in the curation. I think it's a mix. A mix is, you know, don't put too much pressure on people. Stay on top of whatever is the technical trend, because sometimes it changes. For example, when, when Tiny Letter started and then got bought by MailChimp, their selling point was, this is a newsletter platform. It's only about text. It's going to be very simple, no images and stuff. So you cannot get crazy with the templates, which is what a lot of the corporates did. They were sending all these heavy newsletters with a lot of images and stuff, and, uh, but the, the information was mediocre. Substack now is very popular, and it allows people to pay directly for some of the newsletters. So it's, you can run it as a membership thing. Keep on top of the tech on what's happening, but focus on what values is your newsletter offering. And maybe it changes. Uh, there's a, another company, and it's kind of connected to Hugh Denim because one of the guys used to work there, uh, Painter Jackets, P-A-Y-N-T-E-R. They make batches of between 150 and 300 jackets. They made them to order. Uh, so after you purchase, uh, they go sold out in 30 minutes. Uh, they do three per year. And they started very small. They found a very, uh, so they wanted to reproduce the first jacket was the, the French style Vorte de Travail, so the typical kind of workshop blue jackets. And they started sharing all the story of where, which ones they had tried, what was wrong with the ones they would, were finding out there, why they were so cheap or expensive, where they bought the textile. So it ended up being a super geeky, interesting description of the thing. If you cared about jackets or craftsmanship, like in my case, even though I was planning, I've been tempted a few times, but I was always, uh, I contained myself because I don't need an extra jacket. But I actually love their newsletters because, you know, it's, it's and I've actually been promoting them to other friends and stuff. So I don't know if I've generated sales because it's so uh, small batches, but they made it so interesting and, and so transparent and stuff that it's something worth reading. I wouldn't focus too much on the open rates. I mean, if they're zero, that's bad. Some people will leave you from time to time. I even sometimes, David Hyde has two newsletters. I quit one of them, not because I don't like it, but because I don't want to receive so many emails. So I wanted to kind of double curate what I was receiving. But I know that if I want it, I can go back and get it again. So that comes and goes. You could make a list. You know, you could invite your 50 best customers. Those that bought, I don't know, three pairs of shoes. I don't know how, you know, how much. Uh, I have acquaintances that have 300 pairs of sneakers. So I know that there's kind of sick people out there. But maybe you need a, you know, a special newsletter for those 50 people or 30 people. It will require way more effort but they will also feel closer and stuff. And those are the ones that maybe are more open because they buy so much that they care about, hey, we're making a special edition with this very weird leather we found, you know, and, and you can have it first or something like that. You can play with those things, but it's definitely a losing strategy is have a one-size-fits-all and hoping that everything is going to fit. So either accept that you're not able to serve a lot of people and make peace with that and, you know, they're not for you now, maybe in the future, or, you know, uh, decide to create is more work with, you know, smaller groups, you know, and then the whole WhatsApp group and stuff, you know, it's very intense if someone has your phone number, you know, you have to be willing to answer the phone if, if one of them makes by mistake a voice call, right? So uh, that's also a business decision in a way. The other side of the, of the calm internet we're seeing rising is podcasts. If you commute, you know, it's a great way to spend those 45 minutes, hour and a half on a train or on the tube. But also podcasts are bringing back, for the older people in the group who remember radio and that kind of intimacy of radio, of hearing and, and feeling that you knew those people instead of having anonymous things thrown at you on, on digital. 
But the interesting thing of podcasts is that we're regaining interaction away from screens. One of the pleasures of podcasts, for example, I listen to podcasts when I'm doing dishes. It's, it's actually, I'm taking a break from a screen. I use screens a lot for work and also for <laughs> pleasure. So it's kind of a break and it's calm and the episode ends and you can decide are you going to start a new one or not, or you could switch. And the opportunity here is you could create one, uh, you know, and you just need a, your phone. You know, it's, these days you have a lot of platforms that allow you to publish. You don't need, you know, expensive equipment. Of course, there's different levels as with everything. But also you could advertise. And there's thousands of podcasts which maybe have very small groups of listeners, but they're the right listeners for you. Maybe there's the, you know, the, the podcast about the people that geek about shoes. I have a, a friend, he runs a podcast called Layovers about planes and airports. They both travel a lot, so they review airports and seats and the entertainment systems and stuff. It started for fun between these two guys. Uh, and now, I don't know how many listeners they have, but CEOs of all major airlines uh, listen to them. Pilots listen to it, stewardesses, people that are geeks about planes and stuff. So it's not about the size of the audience. Either you could create it and run it for your tribe, or you could find one, which is maybe the local podcast, that is perfect because they're serving the people you care about or want to reach. And you could, you know, pay them some money to sponsor it. One of the good things, one of the trends in podcasting is they don't use canned ads, but they ask the, the host to read them. So it feels more intimate. Instead of having, you know, like a TV ad, you said, oh, and, I, and by the way, I'm using these jeans because this company is the best one. Buy them here. This is my promo code. First of all, starting a podcast is very easy. Spotify bought a, a company called Anchor, and you just use it on your phone, and it works as a studio. You record it there and stuff, and you publish it, and then it goes to iTunes and all the places where it has to be. It's a bit like with websites when WordPress came around. You didn't have to be an expert in, on web design to have a website. Of course, you can pay, and if you want to have you know, fantastic guests all over the world and flying them in and stuff, that requires money. But starting a podcast is relatively easy. And again, being away from the, sc the screens is something we, uh, even if we're not all aware of, of it, it's something we are craving for. Some of this slowness and calm, you know, there's so many hours we can spend behind a screen, and it's, it's actually kind of uh, changing our, our brain structure. I think we're at uh, the limit of the time and stuff. I just want to share one more thing. Thing. I just want to mention a bit of conversational marketing because I mentioned, uh, I showed before that slide of which are the most downloaded apps and you saw that things like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and stuff, all messaging apps are at the top. What's happening is we're seeing that even companies like Facebook are realizing that people don't want to be public with everything and publish it for everybody to see. So there's this, this very, very strong shift to conversations. And this could be either one-to-one -one or as groups. So today we already see that private messaging, ephemeral stories, and small groups are by far the fastest growing areas of online communication. That was Zuck saying it. And when you look at it, you know, I mentioned before, we have this FOMO, we have all these things shooting at us from all angles. So why are messaging, you know, gaining so much of our attention? Well, first of all, they're sort of more, feel more personal or intimate than just, you know, a random tweet or something published for everybody to see. They're sort of private. We could argue if someone is, is reading them or not. You know, I'm not going to get into that now, but it's a more natural way to communicate because we are just chatting. It's faster. Um, it allows group conversations. Who, who here uses WhatsApp? Okay, everybody, I think, or almost everybody. Who here is in at least one WhatsApp group? Do you care to share what, what kind of groups you're into? Only the legal stuff. Family, yeah. Uh, does the, anyone here have kids and are kind of with other parents connected on WhatsApp? That, that has become very, very common. Uh, yeah, I'm part of one that's, you know, uh, I went to a conference and then they said, look, uh, because WhatsApp is limited to, what is it, 250 or there's a limit on, on the number of people. I said, you know what, uh, we're going to invite those that want to stay in touch and stuff. And instead of going to a forum, we're going to have this WhatsApp thing where you can post if you're 
looking for, for a gig or if you are offering work or if you've seen an, an interesting trend. I keep them on mute, so I don't want my phone to be lighting up constantly. But those spaces which, you know, 250 people feels manageable. 100,000, that's, you'll never meet 100,000 people face to face, you'll never remember the names and stuff. So we're seeing that these things are coming back, first of all, because they represent better, uh, I call it the human interface. We're limited in how many people we can interact with and how we interact with. You know, when, when someone says, oh yes, let's uh, pencil something on the agenda to circle back on that KPI, you know, speak like a human, please. There's a cartoon by a guy called Gaping Boy that said, if people talk to you as we were being talked by advertisers, you would punch them in the face. Right? At what point did we start using weird, complicated words and stuff to communicate simple things? So, I'm not going to get into this. There's a lot of things you could do with messaging. You know, customer service is one of the obvious ones. If you're selling, for example, some people like Hugh Denim, because they have capped how big their market is, they can do one-to-one -one interactions with all of their clients. Coke can't. You know, there's millions of users or billions. You know, they cannot interact with all of them. They're great for discovery, they're great for interactive ads, if that's your thing, or for PR. Imagine you have the three or four journalists that matter in your WhatsApp group or in your list. You know, that's more important than having 10,000 people, you know, following you on Twitter or whatever. I'm just going to mention them, I'm not going to show the video. So KLM created a service that uses WhatsApp, where you tell them they have a bot in the middle, when you're flying, and, they'll, uh, and who are your family members waiting for you or that want to know about you, so they'll automatically give them updates of where you are. You know, sometimes a flight is delayed and, and you're worried because the person hasn't reached out to you and stuff. So KLM will send them a WhatsApp message saying, hey, your friend, your, your relative or whatever is still flying because the flight is delayed or uh, it just landed and stuff. And it's small things, but for KLM it was super important. Discovery, Lego created, uh, Lego found out that uh, a lot of people that are not fans of Lego had to buy Lego for someone else and they didn't know what to buy. You know, if you go to Lego online or to the store in Leicester Square, and I'm, I'm a big, I actually have a Lego VIP card, um, <laughs> there's so many kits you could buy. So actually it's quite stressful if you had to decide. So they created this small bot with which kind of a, a decision tree and it'll help you, who do you want to buy a gift for? Is it for a boy or a girl? What's the age? What's your budget? What kind of topics they're into? And then they'll suggest you two or three kits you can buy. Uh, you could use it for PR. Absolute uh, was doing a launch in Argentina. And they were doing a special party. Now, to get into the party, they set out a fictional bouncer and they gave this fictional bouncer a phone with WhatsApp. You had to convince this person by chatting this person to let you in. So it was capped in 250 people or so. But, you know, people were, one says, oh, hey, I have a cute sister. And so actually, some people were offering money and drugs. It, it became kind of surreal. But it was a great stunt. You know, they got a lot of media coverage, it was their goal. Community activation, Macy's did something where. They asked for the following catalog. They asked people to take photos. So they put on a, um, a catwalk online, live streaming, and you could follow it on your phone. And they asked people to do screen captures at the right times with professional models and then to submit those photos for the official catalog. Very low tech. You're just following something on live stream. You have the models posing and the photographer and stuff, and you just do screen caps and you then send them to them. And if they're good enough, you get featured as one of the official photographers in the catalog. That was great for uh, PR and stuff. And of course, you even now have psychologists and psychology services running on chatbots and stuff because sometimes it's a bit more intimate and people can do it, you know, when, when they're afraid of speaking out loud and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of opportunities around conversational these days. But I want to leave you with just a couple of things. First of all, there's always a lot of stuff happening on digital, but don't just jump on the newest trend because everybody else is doing it. Are your people or those you want to reach there? Does it make sense? Do you have the resources to manage it? You know, don't be on all the social media platforms if you don't have the time or energy or people to run them. 
how does it make sense for your business? Uh, some of the big companies, they can afford to throw a lot of money because nobody is actually really responsible in the end, you know, and nobody's accountable for how, you know, what the returns are uh, on it. But if you're a smaller medium business, you know, you cannot throw money at everything and see what sticks. You really have to pay attention to what makes sense to your business, who you're trying to serve, and what of these channels could cover that need. Because in the end, you know, when people say, oh, we have to go on social media and put content out and content out, you know, this is what happens with most content. How do those people that could care about your things find you? The problem with Instagram is unless you pay or unless someone by chance while they're scrolling, you know, for hours gets, gets you know, kind of stuck with your photo and like them and stuff, it's very difficult to catch someone's attention and then generate something that goes beyond just, you know, tapping on it and, 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 and giving a like. It's interesting when I think about learning stuff. YouTube is amazing uh, because there's the geekiest things online and some of them have five views but it's the right thing um, and it gives you that chance to at least have more content but the key thing is how do you find stuff on YouTube people will search for it right so first of all if you're making the effort of creating something are you putting enough of an effort on the discover discoverability of it now I'm not a big fan of SEO per se because if you do great SEO search engine optimization but what you offer is crap you know you just made it easier for people to find crap um, but from what I understand, you're on the opposite side. You're creating something interesting, and it's how can people discover you. Um, sometimes, it's, in my case, I write about craftsmanship. I have a, a small newsletter about this. Um, I, I, I uh, reach out directly by email or, or on social media to people that are doing something I care about, and then they become my ambassadors. Uh, three days ago on my Twitter, I read something. Someone retweeted a, a, a venture capitalist that was talking about how you need to go back to craftsmanship or the idea of craftsmanship in venture capital and finance. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of finance and VCs in general, but I said, oh, this seems like a smart person. He has 100,000 followers or something. He's kind of a, an important guy. I said, hey, uh, Fred, I wrote this article in November about craftsmanship and how I believe that people in digital could start living again from their neck down and not just from their neck up and shared that article with him on Medium. And it had only had until then 1,000 reads or something like that. He liked it, he shared it to his followers, and now I saw a small spike in, in my newsletter. Uh, but what made a difference was not that I hoped that he found me, is that I said, oh, you're into this kind of topic? Look, I wrote this, and it was not pitchy, it was not, oh, I think, you know, it was, oh, I read your thing and stuff, and I wrote something similar, and I think it could resonate with you. And he actually liked it. The question is, the interaction has to be honest, right? Uh, for example, in, in the book space, I'm trying to get a, a publisher, right? I'm doing webinars, and I'm attending some gatherings with agents and stuff. And most of the time, the interactions are cringeworthy. People say, oh, you're so smart and stuff, you know, trying to kind of convince the, the agent to get them a deal. And it's, it doesn't work. You know, the agents have seen so much. The question is, how do you build that honest connection? It could be slow. It could require a lot of work. But that's what in the end pays. And sometimes there's luck. You know, sometimes someone by mistake retweets you and they have a million followers and it's amazing. And, you know, it's, uh, but you cannot, it, luck has to find you prepared. You know, so you have to be out there, you know, putting in the, 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 the effort to, to make sure that there's a chance that you'll thrive. And also give, 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 because um, uh, I'm not expecting to get anything back because that's when it becomes a transaction, then it's, that's where you, you break the magic, right? So you have to be willing to be happy if you just gave stuff and nothing came back. Because otherwise we can, as, as humans, we're very good at understanding when someone is honest. You can, you can feel it, you can smell it, right? So, and there's so much stuff, you know, digital 
was was great in which it reduced a certain kind of friction, but then it reduced every possible friction. So now everybody's out there shouting, right? And it's, uh, the, the filters have become so valuable. Having a great curator, so I subscribe to a couple of newsletters um, that they read a lot of the stuff I care about, but then they present the two or three things I should be reading. And because it's taken a few you know, years to understand who they are, and, and sometimes I meet them for, for, for coffee and stuff, now I, okay, I'm gonna trust you with this domain. I cannot be an expert on that, there's not enough time, right? So sometimes it's becoming that person that gives, gives, gives. These days, for example, uh, I don't know if you're aware of Patreon, patreon.com. Uh, they actually just launched native in the UK, so now you can be paid in pounds. What you can do is, you know, you can support a creator with one pound per month or a hundred pounds per month, and you get different kinds of benefits and stuff. But this allowed people that before, maybe, you know, uh, they could hope maybe for a job or something. Now they, they give, 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 and you can reward them with maybe one quid, you know, or two quid or ten quid. But what they are doing is they're filtering, filtering stuff for you. Some of them is you support directly the creative. There's an illustrator I follow. Uh, he used to be a commercial illustrator. Now he just does naughty stuff. His big break breakthrough is he used to do postcards. You could pay f for him to send a postcard to someone else saying that they were horrible. So he said, oh, Chimo, you're an asshole. And he'll draw a postcard and then it became a book and stuff. Now he lives from this. And you actually, if you like his art, you pay him by buying something from time to time. He has things at five quid, something at, at, at 40, you know. But, but uh, what is interesting is that today we don't have those middlemen um, and if you're a giver and people care about what you're doing, now they have a chance to reward you without necessarily buying, you know, big time what, what you're doing. Thousand, thousand followers, a thousand fans. If you can, if a thousand people, especially if you're an independent or a small business, if a thousand people that are a fan of what you do and care about you, that's all you need. Forget about the 10,000 gazillion followers on Instagram and stuff that are just addicted to their phones. This is a selection of books I recommend. Uh, this is Marketing by Seth Godin, kind of summarizes what he's been teaching for the last 20 years. And it's very useful and practical for uh, a freelancer up to a billion dollar company. Tiny Habits, Behavior Design. I did a course with BJ uh, a few years ago and I thought it was the most valuable professional thing I ever did, even compared to my degree in engineering and, and, and my MBA. Uh, newsletters do open by David Hyatt. Uh, the power of moments it helps you identify those opportunities where you could either be relevant or be useful or even be entertaining, not just doing it, you know, at any given moment. And then Com Technology. This one is a bit geekier. Uh, Amber Case, she, she's kind of hardcore into the tech side of things, but it's giving a glimpse of where some of these things are going. You know, the fact that we're done with kind of interrupting people constantly and trying to bombard our eyes and stuff. That's kind of it. I tried to condense a few ideas and, and trends and stuff. I hope it was at least useful or relevant or entertaining. And, and I think, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Creative Callings. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your friends.